the, uh, the Bible reading for today comes from Mark chapter 7, verse 24, to 8, verse 13, and it's on page 819 of the Pew Bible. Well, the Pew Bible I've got starts on page 819. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him and she came forward and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private away from the crowd and put his fingers into his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Ephphatah, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In those days, when there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples replied, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit on the ground and he took the seven loaves and after giving thanks he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute and they distributed them to the crowd. They had also a few small fish and after blessing them he ordered that these too should be distributed. They ate and were filled and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people 
and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat uh, with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees became, uh, came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, he went across to the other side. This is the word of the Lord. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, 
we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty. I don't know about you, but I always feel really emotional when I hear um, the speech by Martin Luther King Jr. But those words, I have a dream, were not in the original script. They were penciled in the night before when he couldn't sleep and he was trying to come up with some language, some words that would change the conversation about racial discrimination non-violently. And he was a pastor, and where did he go? The Bible. <laughs> he went to Isaiah 40. Every valley will be lifted up and every hill brought low. The uneven ground made smooth and the crooked places straight. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now, I want you to listen while I read the verse just before verse 4 in Isaiah 40. A voice cries out, prepare in the wilderness a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, you might have forgotten, but that's exactly how Mark begins his gospel. Let me read it to you. Verse 2 of Mark. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It's a version, a quote of Isaiah 40 and 43 and 4. So what's going on? What I think is going on is Isaiah was imagining a world when God would come to the earth. And Mark begins his gospel saying, God has come to the earth. And Martin Luther King Jr., in his most famous speech, says that it's this faith that God has come that lies at the heart of what the American Constitution holds as self-evident, that all people are made equal. And on this basis, he calls for the deep valley of racism to be lifted up and the vicious mountain of discrimination to be laid low. And our passage, even though you probably don't realize it yet, strikes deep into the theology of what made that speech so powerful. Because in a similar way, the Jews saw themselves as superior, as God's chosen ones, which was true. But they saw the rest of humanity as Gentile dogs. And our reading today may not shock us at first, but Jesus is doing something shocking. The three stories in our passage come with almost no teaching by Jesus. 
but the message is as penetrating and it wrestles with the oppression of Jew and Gentile as powerfully as the I have a dream speech. And it's this, God has come and his glory has been made visible to all flesh in Israel and also outside of Israel because he casts out a demon from a non-Jew's daughter. He restores the hearing and loosens the speech of a man who lives outside of Israel. And he lifts up the valleys to welcome non-Jews in a crowd of 4,000 non, mostly non-Jews. He's flattening the mountains of Jewish entitlement. Markan scholar Rick Watts draws attention to Mark's high view of Jesus. Theologians have thought that John has the highest view of Jesus as God. But no, Mark does too, but it's embedded in the narratives. Rick Watts explains that it was there from the beginning that Jesus was held as God. It didn't develop because it was unescapable inescapable. But this for Jews is an outstanding thing, says Watts, to put Jesus, anyone, in the same category as Yahweh, the God who alone is God, the one God of Israel, the God who comes and lives among his people. Now, in, in Islam, it's true to say that Allah does not come and live among his people. The closest we get is via the prophet Muhammad. In Buddhism, enlightenment comes through practices of detachment. But can God come and live among people? It's inconceivable. And in Hinduism, even after countless reincarnations of good lives, you don't meet God. I'm pretty sure you may be fortunate enough to become a God. You might a Brahmin. But even in your final reincarnation, you dissolve into the impersonal universe. God is energy. God has no plan. He does not care or have compassion. God is not a person. And what of atheism? Well, it has no God, of course. But there are some similarities to these. This planet, our most precious relationships, are a one in a billion fluke. And there is no real right or wrong. There is no plan, and there is no ultimate meaning. So we have to consider what Mark tells us, the gospel with no birth story. God has come to us, and we see him behaving just like Yahweh. Remember in the Exodus, in the wilderness, God lived amongst the 12 tribes of Israel in that tabernacle and they could see the brightness of his glory. 
Well, now Jesus comes to live among his 12 disciples, representing the 12 tribes, and he's in his tabernacle too. The human body. And in the wilderness, God fed Israel on manna. But Jesus feeds the 5,000 Jews in a desert. And now, in our passage, he feeds a crowd of non-Jews in a desert. It seems, though, that God has two agendas. He's raising up the valleys of Gentile exclusion and he's lowering the valleys of Jewish entitlement. Well, last Sunday, you guys missed out on Denise's sermon. She spoke about the, bit of the, a bit of, the first bit of uh, chapter 7, about unclean food and clean food, and how the Pharisees divided all food into clean and unclean, and all people into clean and unclean. And Jesus said, your hearts are far from me. And you know what? He gives a few examples of what that can look like. And I think it's true of Christians. We too can do many good things, but our hearts can wander and become far. For instance, Jesus says, avarice, the love of wealth, it may tug our hearts away from God. We may be tempted to deceive, to cover up inconvenient truths. Or we may give in to sexual sin, whether we're a priest or whether we're browsing the internet. Jesus said it's not what we eat. It's not the color of our skin or our political views or dare I say our theology that makes us clean or unclean. It's our heart. So to prove it, Jesus travels deep into Gentile territory. Now, he goes outside of Israel. See where it says Galilee? That's Israel. He travels into Phoenicia up to the city of Tyre. And then it's, it says in our text, to return home, he goes further north to Sidon, right up into Lebanon. And then to return home, he comes right into Syria and down into the Decapolis. The Decapolis is also Gentile not Jewish. It seems like Jesus' root is emphatically saying there are no unclean food and there are no unclean people, by your definitions anyway. So we find then that outside of Israel, in that first story of the Syrophoenician mother, Jesus is treated as God, and she's a Greek. On hearing he's nearby, she goes to him. She bows at his feet. She begs him to do what only God can do, command a demon to get out of her daughter, and Jesus does it. But he does it in response to her belief. Said so in Matthew, not in Mark. But let's see what she does. She believes that the God of the Jews will show mercy, not just to Jews, but to her too, a Greek. And that word dog, now Jesus actually doesn't use the word dog. The, the, the Greek word for dog is kion, and he uses the word kynarion, which means a small dog or even a pup. 
So she says, he says, you know, first the children have to be fed and then we throw the scraps to the dogs or the little pups is what he actually says. And she picks up an invitation in that word first. She says, okay, if it's not fair to take what belongs to the children first, it is fair for us to get it second. And she pictures herself like a little dog. But she extends Jesus' parable because now he's never mentioned a table, but she adds the table in. She's sitting under the table waiting for the scraps to fall. She's desperate and she creatively builds on Jesus' parable, places herself there because she understands that though Jesus has come first to the Gentiles, she can get some of the overflow. Now get this. Here, halfway through Mark's gospel, a non-Jewish woman is the first person who understands a parable of Jesus without an explanation from him. And if she's seen as representative, all flesh really is going to be able to see God. And Paul picks this up because other valleys can be lifted before this God made visible in Jesus. He says, for in Christ you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, Friday was International Women's Day in Jesus' day, Jewish men were held as superior to women, children, and slaves in every way. The daily prayers of Jewish men included, this is the daily prayers, included this prayer of thanksgiving. Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. And a Jewish writer by the name of Philo he taught that women should not leave the home at all except to go to the synagogue. But this kind of thinking was not born out of Old Testament teaching. It was Greek thinking that had come into Judaism, placing women in the private realm of the home, fully, totally responsible for rearing the children and keeping the home, but removed from participation in the public arena. And you know, even in churches today, it's Greek thought, not Christian theology, that still clings. But let's just get back to the next story in Mark. So Jesus comes right down to the Decapolis. It's a region that was mostly Jews on the east side of Galilee. And a man's hearing has, has gone. And he has a tongue tie, that word about him not being able to speak properly, is a word called mogalalos. It means your tongue is tied up, a speech impediment. But I want you to see what Mark's doing. The word mogalalos does not occur anywhere else in the Bible except in Isaiah 35. And wait for it. Isaiah 35 is nothing but a chapter on the inclusion of the Gentiles often referred to as the seven Gentile nations, they too get included. And let's 
see what it says there in Isaiah 35. Then, when the Gentiles are included, the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap for joy. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the speechless, the mogalalos, will sing for joy. The streams will flow in the desert and a highway shall be there. The unclean shall not travel on it, but the redeemed shall walk there. And who are the unclean? Well, they're no longer the Gentiles. The Gentiles are clean because the unclean won't walk there. They're redeemed. So what does Jesus do? As non-Jews are being brought in to the story of God, he gets this man and he puts spit on him and he puts his fingers in his ears and stuff, like he's deaf, he's, you know, he needs some physical stuff. But Jesus speaks and he says, Ephathah, be opened. And the ears of this deaf man in non-Jewish territory were opened and his tongue was loosened. This is Isaiah 35 happening. But just stick with me, it gets even better. Like pieces of a puzzle there's more. Because Isaiah 35 connects almost seamlessly to Isaiah 40, when the valleys will be lifted up and the mountains laid low. There's a story in between about King Hezekiah's defeat of the Babylonian forces, but we know this doesn't last. Israel goes into exile, but after their penalty has been paid, God will come to comfort Israel in Isaiah 40. He will lift up the valleys of oppression inside and outside of Israel and lower the mountains of entitlement inside and outside of Israel because God has come for his children. All of them. And what about the feeding of the 4,000? It was probably a mixed crowd, but mainly non-Jews. And it's a valley lift. Notice that unlike the feeding of the 5,000, these people were with Jesus for three days, not one. And the amount of leftovers, oh yeah, and Jesus has compassion because they're hungry, not the disciples. Jesus sits them down, not the disciples. Jesus prays a prayer of thanksgiving in the Gentile style, not the Jewish style. And when the baskets are counted at the end, there are seven. The seven nations of the Gentiles. But guess what? The word for basket is a basket big enough for a human to sit in. But the 12 baskets after the 5,000 are the same size as a basket to put your lunch in. Two different words for basket. It's unmistakable. The overflow of God's compassion for the non-Jews is unmistakable. Yet there is this order. Jesus spends most of his time with the Jews because salvation comes through the Jewish nation, through the promises to Israel. And they were the original have-nots. Refugees in the desert, slaves in Egypt. But God chose them. He had compassion upon them, but they had become entitled and superior. 
these three Gentile stories are sandwiched between telling conversations with the Pharisees. The Pharisees in our passage seem unable to hear a thing. They can't even speak coherently because they ask Jesus for a sign, please, when God is standing in front of them. Where does that leave us? The racist and those oppressed by it, the entitled and the excluded, men who hold on to power, women who suffer in some instances second-class status or even abuse, people who identify with diverse sexual orientations, the hungry, the deaf, people with overwhelming health challenges and mental health challenges, the priest and the abused. We all stand on the same level ground before God in equal need of his deep compassion. So who do I feel superior towards? Who do you feel superior towards? To be free, we need to bow as that mother did and repent before God and experience the overflow of his mercy, straightening our crooked thinking, receiving his compassion. But are there people or structures or situations that have excluded you, that have discriminated against you? Again, to be free, we need to bow before our God in Jesus, express our need and experience his compassion as he reaches into our lostness and our loneliness and our sense of indignity, even our sense of inadequacy because of the failure of systems, and allow him to lift us up onto level ground with dignity, with hope, with fresh courage, because God's glory is for all to see in his son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.